Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes a young professional early in their career talking to an expert for academic and industry insights. At some point, we turn the tables around, where the expert asks the young professional about their agonies, dreams, and aspirations about their field. In today's podcast, we're honored to have Dr. Konstantin Sedikidis from University of Southampton, United Kingdom. He's a professor of social and personality psychology and the director of the Center for Research on Self-Identity. The young professional today is Christina Balkanas, a medical student from the University of Nicosia in Cyprus. Let's start off with you. How about you share with our audience what you do for a living? I am an experimental psychologist. And I specialize in social psychology, uh, which is an area that has to do with um, not with the intrapsychic uh, aspects of the individual, but how the person responds to others, how the person perceives others and the environment or relationships or groups, these sorts of processes. Basically, the individual in society, how the individual affects society and how society shapes the individual. Hmm. So you, you, you mentioned that I'm in Cyprus now and that's part of my journey to becoming who I am and how society is influencing me. Um, do you mind sharing a bit about what your journey was like to get from where you started to where you are right now doing research on um, social psychology? Uh, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Thessaloniki. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, uh, I was taking courses here and there. Um, I had always an interest in sociology and anthropology and human affairs, but as an undergraduate, uh, it's difficult. It was difficult to tell what exactly I wanted to do. And then I took a course in social psychology where I was acquainted with uh, the Milgram experiments where the individual is instructed by an authority figure to deliver uh, electric shocks to someone else. So it's an obedience to authority idea. Will the individual stop? At what level will the individual stop and turn to authority and say, that's enough. I'm not doing it. I'm going to kill the other person mm. delivering electric shocks. So that was, I couldn't believe it that normal individuals just like you and me uh, obeyed authority almost to the point where the electric shocks they delivered were lethal. So, I was taken by the power of situations, the power of circumstances to change our behavior. And this is social psychology, how the context can change us regardless of what our personality is. Personality is relevant, but, uh, but the context, the situation is also very powerful. But I couldn't believe that this important issue, and it is important because the experimenters were trying to simulate Nazi behavior. This is how the Nazis behave, right? Basically making people do things that they wouldn't want to do. It's, I couldn't believe it that these important issues could be studied experimentally in the laboratory. I was fascinated by it. 
So of course, I wanted to learn more and more and more until I decided to get my PhD in social psychology, which back then I could not get in Greece because there was no school or department of psychology in Greece yet. So I applied to the US um, and uh, got my PhD degree from the Ohio State University in social psychology. Mm -hmm. And then I became an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And then an associate and full professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, up until 99, when uh, my family and I moved to England, uh, the University of Southampton, where I had the opportunity to put together my own group of research. And uh, I've been very happy here in the last 20, 21 years. So here I am. I haven't gone anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, though. You've been so many different places. You seems like you've been able to travel a bunch with your work. Um, do you think that the traveling has influenced any of your research in any way? It has. Let me say that this is a nice bonus um, of being a scientist, that you have to travel. It's a professional requirement, mm -hmm. but also it's a wonderful opportunity to get to know other cultures, meet persons from other cultures. And indeed, and of course, um, I'm a cultural lover. I just, I love the cultural differences and all that. Um, but my exposure to other cultures indeed gave me the opportunity to develop a line of research on cross-cultural psychology. Basically, as you said, how and why individuals from different cultures differ and what does it mean? What are the implications of this difference for their behavior? For, for, for example, individuals from the West, from Western cultures um, have more of an independent uh, self-construal. We think of ourselves as separate from others, not disconnected from others, but as separate to begin with. But individuals from, from East Asian cultures think of themselves as interdependent. They have an interdependent self-construal. They think of themselves as strongly connected to others. And that difference in the way that people think about themselves affects their behavior, of course. And it's, just, it's just fascinating stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, we would talk about that a lot during my undergrad, the weird cultures and how you could do research in one place and find something completely different than you would somewhere else because of those cultural differences. Um, yes, well, I want, I want to know much more about you and where you did your research and everything. And we'll talk about that later, right? That's okay, okay. Yeah. But I want to, to uh, make an observation here, which is that as social psychologists, as a scientist, I want to derive basic principles, laws, Yes. that generalize across cultures. But then, of course, these laws, these principles need to be slightly moderated, slightly modified, depending on context, depending on culture. Mm -hmm. um, what I have found is that, indeed, many of those laws generalize pretty well across cultures. Uh, but, of course, there is variability. Sometimes they generalize better in some cultures than others. But the starting point has to be a general principle of human behavior. Otherwise, you will not understand human behavior. There are about 200 major cultures. And does it mean that 
there are about 200 ways in which people behave. Uh, and within its culture, there is a huge number of subcultures. And what does it all mean? So you do have to start with principles of human behavior and then see how they apply or they need to be modified by culture. That's true. Just like things like emotion to how the universal emotions. Uh, I know there was this study where they went to remote areas and looked at different populations and saw that a smile is a smile even in other cultures. Um, yes. So you, just, you do got to start somewhere. Yes, this is research by Paul Ekman and colleagues. Uh, they did yeah. that. But of course, it may be that although the physiology of anger and perhaps the expression of it are similar across culture, perhaps the causes of it may differ. For example, you have uh, honor cultures, like, uh, well, like there is, there is now in Turkey, especially in Anatolia, like they used to be in Crete, and perhaps there is still in some mountainous areas of Crete, where honor is very important. So there you get angry if you perceive that someone else has violated your honor. But then you go into Athens and honor is irrelevant. You get angry if someone cut in front of you in traffic. So, yeah. it's, so the triggers may be different, but the basic physiology of it and perhaps expression of it is quite similar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you think, um, since we're talking about cultural differences and the way that we respond to stimuli, do you think that during the COVID-19 pandemic, there were different influences of the pandemic on different cultures? Or do you think it was more of a universal response? Yeah, that's a very nice example. Uh, take, for example, the case of China mm -hmm. uh, or, or Japan, which are highly collectivistic cultures. So people there, individuals have an interdependent self-construal. It's acceptable for the collective, for the community, to be heavy-handed and take measures that individuals need to comply with. Now, in the West, we are more individualistic. Even in countries where people are not um, very, pe where people have the state in high regard, like in England, for example, where I live, mm -hmm. even in those countries, people do not easily accept uniform measures taken by the states. And you have individuals reacting to it. And you see the phenomenon of still some people refusing, for example, to be vaccinated or wear masks. Um, many of them because of principle. They just don't like for the state to mess in their own individual affairs. So this is a cultural difference. Exactly. Yeah, I think we've seen that in the US and Canada a lot with people feeling as if their independence uh, is being attacked by being told what to do. It's almost like yes. they would rather not be told to wear a mask. They'd be more likely to wear it without somebody telling them to do it. Indeed, for example, in China or Japan, um, public health is very important. It doesn't matter what the individual thinks. Public health is important because it affects all of us. But in the West, the US, Canada, the UK, public health is important, but so are individual rights. 
So there is a trade-off. So people in the West are a bit more flexible in terms of trade-offs. <laughs> yeah, could be better. If, have, um, since we're talking about COVID, have you felt the push to do any COVID research? Because I know when I was working for my PI back in Canada, there was a lot of funding being offered if you steered a little bit into COVID. Did you do any COVID research? We have done a lot of COVID research. I jumped on the bad wagon myself, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, may I give you an example? Yes, of course. One line, one program, one enduring program of research I have here with colleagues is on the emotion of nostalgia. Uh, being an immigrant, how, what else could I do, right? <laughs> so emotion, the emotion of nostalgia, uh, what we find is that Although the emotion has an, had a negative reputation and has had it for about 330 years, in the last 15, 20 years, with our experimental approach, our experimental analysis of the emotion, we have shown that actually personal nostalgia is very beneficial to people. When you become nostalgic about your own individual past, that has benefits for you. For example, it makes you feel more socially connected or belonging. Yeah. It makes, it increases meaning in life. Your life feels more meaningful. It makes your life uh, seem like it goes on a continuum. It increases self-continuity. You understand better how you got here from there. And self-continuity is an important landmark indicator of mental health. Uh, it increases optimism inspiration and so on and so forth. So nostalgia is beneficial and important uh, to people. But does nostalgia also help deal with uh, the uncertainties of life and the hassles of life? And what we did, the studies we did as part of the pandemic uh, go as follows, and I'll be brief, uh, the pandemic is, has been associated with rises in loneliness. Just people feel felt lonely during the pandemic, and we know why, right? Mm -hmm. Quarantines and all that. But how, did, how, how would, would they deal with loneliness? What would they do? And what we found is that nostalgia is a very important resource. So for example, people who felt lonely also felt like no, they were not socially supported or they were unhappy. But at the same time, people who, who felt lonely felt nostalgic. And because they felt nostalgic, they felt more socially supported or happier. So nostalgia counteracted the negative implications of loneliness. And in fact, when you make, you induce experimentally nostalgia among lonely people, you see that they benefit from it in all sorts of ways. So we are trying, we have shown then that nostalgia is a buffer, is a healthy response against loneliness. And of course, our next step has been to take interventions to try to instill nostalgia as a preemptive response even to buffer people against loneliness. Mm -hmm. So nostalgia could be in a way therapeutic for... Yes, yes, it is. It alleviates loneliness and not only. Um, it alleviates, for example, bad mood, um, meaninglessness in life, boredom. Uh, 
disillusionment. In fact, even when you're in a room that is cold and you become nostalgic, you feel much warmer than when you're not nostalgic. So it even alleviates noxious stimuli that are physical as opposed to psychological. Yeah. That's so very interesting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. I'm, I'm a very nostalgic person myself and I would agree that during COVID, I definitely found myself looking back at old photos from before um, saying, oh my gosh, look at this back when we were able to go out and stuff before COVID and it's bittersweet. I, so I kind of look at it as a positive emotion. So it shocked me a bit when you said that there's the negative connotation with nostalgia. Is there some sort of history to why it was perceived that way before? Of course, the, the first legitimate book on nostalgia uh, not book, story on nostalgia, was the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. so our compatriot, for example, Homer, wrote this masterpiece where the hero Odysseus um, goes through a lot in his 10-year travelogue trying to get back from Troy to Ithaca. And what sustains him, according to Homer, was nostalgia. The fact that he was nostalgic about his wife, his son, his father, his kingdom, and that would help him get up in the morning and keep fighting. So Homer saw nostalgia as a, as a vitamin, as a resource that helps you get going. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, between Homer and uh, late 16th century, the topic was dead. Nobody, nobody talked about it. And then a Swiss medical student, uh, Hofer is his name, Johannes Hofer, decided to do his dissertation on nostalgia. Who knows why? Um, the context was that Switzerland back then was a very poor country and youngsters, boys of 15 or 16, had to get out of their country to get a job. Right? So the easier way to get a job was to become a mercenary in the armies in, in wealthy European countries like France or Italy. And now you see that those 15, 16 year olds found themselves in a foreign land without speaking the language, um, isolated and expecting to die every day. You, this very strong trauma Hofer found was associated with nostalgia. And he thought this young man, young boys, nostalgize a lot. Hence, nostalgia is bad and nostalgia is associated with all sorts of physical and psychological problems. You name it, depression, anxiety, uh, uh, cardiac palpitations, just anything. So he thought nostalgia is awful. Nostalgia does it. If they did not become nostalgic, they would not have these problems. And this view persisted for over 300 years that nostalgia is bad. You should never go back to your past. It's an escapism. It's bad. You should stick to your present and future. But of course, Hofer made an inferential mistake. He thought that nostalgia caused those physical and psychological problems. It was the other way around. The psychological and physical problems came first. And these young boys resorted to nostalgia to be able to cope 
with their physical and psychological problems. So nostalgia is a coping resource. It's not the cause of people's misfortunes. And you can tease that apart with experiments. So when you induce, for example, nostalgia, you see that it has many, many benefits and not problems. So nostalgia will not make you lonely and depressed. But if you are lonely, then you become nostalgic and that helps. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Uh, while we're on the topic of um, coping mechanism and mechanisms and challenges that people encounter, in your career as a scientist, have you ever encountered any sort of challenges that you'd like to share with the younger generation that's listening to the podcast? Uh, I would say, well, science is competitive, let's face it. You compete with excellent minds, very hardworking people for grants, for publications, you name it. You cooperate with many wonderful people as well, but also you compete. So to me, to be able to not just do well, but to be able to enjoy it, you have to love it. So you get a PhD out of love. To me, that's the best recipe. Uh, you've got to find a topic that you are passionate about and do it for the love of it, not because you want to be a careerist, if you're passionate about it and you have the relevant, the required aptitude and a good work ethic, I think there is a way out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so important. Otherwise, you're going to end up doing something you don't even like. And then it's just. Yes, tough. it is. It is. And a PhD can be a lonely experience. So you need to have good social support. Um, and, um, and try to enjoy it because these are five or six years of hard work and hard work and uncertainty, but still it's your life. So you, ha you have to find ways to enjoy it, get pleasure out of it. It sustains you. And this way you'll become nostalgic about your PhD years later on. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> do you have anything any favorite research topics since you since you mentioned having to love what you do? What's one of your favorite? It's things? interesting that as an undergraduate, I did not tell you that it took me six years to graduate from Thessaloniki, from the university, from Aristotle University. A reason is that uh, I got into the school of philosophy and studied philosophy and ancient uh, the ancients classics, and and uh, for four years, and then moved into psychology for another two years. So, but my, you, you can argue that my classics, my education in classics uh, did not necessarily serve me well. And I could have studied psychology for four years and could have been better off, but I'm not sure. Because if you look, when I look back at my research programs, all four of them have been inspired by classics. One is nostalgia. As an undergraduate, for example, I took a course from um, Dimitris Maronidis uh, on uh, um, uh, the lies of Odysseus. Odysseus told 20 lies on his way from Troja, Tro Troja, Troja to Ithaca to escape his predators. Right? And through that, I read and reread the Odyssey and realized what Homer was trying to say about nostalgia. 
also through classics, I became acquainted with uh, the way in which the Socratics and the Epicureans, for example, viewed the self. I have a, a, my biggest program of research is, is on self-evaluation, how people think about themselves. Do people, for example, want accuracy? Do people want to know the truth about themselves, as Socrates argued? Or do people want to know sort of the good news about themselves, as some Epicureans argued? And of course, there is a trade-off. People care about the truth, but people want the good news as well. But what we have found, for example, over the years, is that when the news have the potential to hurt you, when you think they're going to be negative, you don't want to hear about them. You don't care about the truth. You want positivity. You want to avoid negativity. So in, in that sense, Socrates missed the point a little. Um, so see, but, but, but regardless, what I'm trying to say is that the inspiration for my work on self-evaluation came from them. The inspiration from my work on authenticity, uh, what is the authentic self? And is there an essence, a true essence of the self came from Aristotle. He was the first one who talked about authenticity and he blew my mind about the way in which he talked about it. So you see, it's, um, it was not a waste of time at all. It was uh, very useful and it still is a source of inspiration for me, the classics, classic education that is. Yeah, it's definitely important to have diverse, a diverse outlook on the world instead of just being stuck to science, having things to tie it into, especially as a social psychologist when yes. you're looking into cultures. I'm a firm believer in liberal arts education uh, for students to take sort of random courses even and just stumble mm -hmm. upon something that they will find interesting. This is what happened to me. I, I did not become a social psychologist by design, a grand purpose in life. Again, I stumbled upon it and realized that this topic uh, make me, made me feel alive. It was sort of a random thing, serendipity, wasn't it? And yeah. this is what liberal arts education allows you to do. And I know they, they also did a whole study on medical students. I read, forget who it was, but they had them go to art museums as a course and just look at paintings. And they found that at the end of it, they were actually doing better on their pathology exams where looking at cells under a microscope. So I was not aware of this study, but it's fascinating. <laughs> if I find it, I'll send it to you. I'll find it again. And Thank you. Thank it. you. Thank you. Um, is there, would you advise students like me to take any particular breadth courses to try and um, do what you did and find some sort of serendipity in our own lives? Grad courses on what topic? On uh, any or? Are you just, you believe in the arts or do you think that we should diversify and explore as much as we can when we have yes, the chance? Yes, well, yes, we should diversify, yes. I, I love the arts and history and all that, of course. I'm just trying to understand um, your question because, for example, if, if you ask me what is a basic course in psychology, I would say statistics and experimental design, research methods. If you were to ask me in general, how about undergraduate education? Yes, I would advocate being as broad as possible and indeed delving into history and arts and talking to as many people as possible, being open-minded. Mm 
these yeah. are the years to be open-minded. Yeah. Um, my, my principal investigator always tells me that too. He says, I wish I could go back to your age so I could diversify more because now that he's in his career, he feels like it's harder to do that. It is very hard, yes, because it, as, as I said before, science is competitive. You, you need to get the next grant to get, your, to get your research going and to be able to employ people in your lab because you care about them, true? So it's difficult. It's not impossible, but it's more difficult to diversify after a certain career stage, yeah. So what advice would you give to a student who's coming into their career, who hasn't established a career yet, what's one thing you would recommend them to do? Uh, let's assume that I have a very talented uh, graduate student, and I do have them every year. They're wonderful. Mm -hmm. I would try to make sure that this person uh, indeed can satisfy her or his very passion for research. Uh, but at the same time, being very cognizant of their own individuality and what is it that they want, and also of their limits, how hard are they willing to work? There is a lot of variability there. I would not pressure people into working harder than they want to do. And I want to make sure that they follow their own, early on, as early as possible, their own individual path into doing what they want to do. But at the same time, I would try and am trying to create an environment that is supportive, where the individual feels safe, the individual has friends, can confess to them, even behind the back of the professor, sometimes they need to. Um, so there's, the, the, I want them to feel as socially supported as possible so that after five years, when they are out of here in their own, in the big wide world, they can turn back and say, yeah, those five years was, was not a waste of my time. That was time well spent. I have made friends for life. That would be my dream. That's amazing. Sounds like you're a good leader. And I want you to be my supervisor. <laughs> you should apply here. <laughs> I'll be traveling just like you, bouncing around everywhere. Um, do you find that it's rewarding mentoring all these young students in the lab? It's extremely rewarding. It's uh, my, if I'm proud of uh, some awards I have received, these are the mentoring awards. I love it. It's, um, let me say that this is not a one-way street. Of course, I love mentoring young people, but it's incredible what young people can give you back. Energy, inspiration, ideas, new ways of looking at things, challenge. Uh, and, and it just, it makes your day every day. It's wonderful. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna wrap it up with one last question. In a perfect setting, where would you go for dinner? Whom would you invite? What food would you order? And what song would you select? <laughs> you might get a, a little nostalgic for this one. <laughs> you want me to tell you also who my guests will be? So, yes, of course. <laughs> well, there are a couple of um, intellectuals I admire. Um, um, 
because they, they because of their breakthrough work. One was uh, Charles Darwin. Um, I, I I still read his books and I can't believe how insightful he was. And another another one, um, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, was Karl Marx. And this the power of his mind. Uh, it just is incredible to me. And he's indeed. If someone wants to understand capitalism, they should read Marx. It's just, uh, he's wonderful. I would like to invite them, of course. I would, uh, I would like them to have a conversation with um, my undergraduate mentor, Dimitris Maronidis, who also was, had a very powerful mind and he was a contrarian. <laughs> and I would like to see him disagree with both of them and school them as to why he's right and why they're wrong. <laughs> I would go to a Greek restaurant, of course, and I would have Spanakopita, because I love it. In the backdrops of a Kazantzidis song about Xenitia. <laughs> Can I come too? <laughs> it's an odd, it's a very weird mix, but there you have it. <laughs> I'll just sit at another table in the taverna and listen to what's happening. <laughs> you will be entertained. <laughs> Γέρασε η ξενιτιά και τρώει τη ζωή μου και την αντέχω μάνα μου το Way you see things and your aspirations for the hmm. future and your background also i guess i just start then so um my aspirations at the moment i'm in medical school here in cyprus so i'm trying to become a doctor ah. um everybody always asks why are you doing that and then i get a bit overwhelmed because when i try to put my finger on why it's hard to pinpoint it or just like put one word or one sentence to what it is that drew me to that but I I just always have wanted to help other people and give back but then I love science as well so that aspect of being able to help others while constantly learning about the human body new things and reading new research as it comes up was really intriguing for me so mm -hmm. I ended up in Cyprus doing that um how come? How come Cyprus? I, the, instead of going to school in Canada, there, I found the program here. It was actually quite, I don't even know how I came across it. I got an email from University of Nicosia. I don't know how they got my email. Somebody must have sold it to them. And it said, come study medicine in Cyprus. And um, I, have, I have family from here. My is from here, so I looked into the program and I thought I may as well apply. And then 
I ended up here and I, I like it. I like being somewhere new, but it hasn't been as much as a culture shock for me as it is for the other students. So um, it's new, but it's also familiar at the same time. Mm. So this is a small class. Yeah, there is 80 of us. It's not a huge school, but yeah. Mm. And do you plan to go into research or practice or both? I think like you, I like mentoring others. So I'm thinking to do practice and research, like both of them at the same time, but maybe also working in a teaching setting so I can help um, upcoming medical students learn as well. That's, that's exciting, but, <laughs> but you'll be there, what, five, six years from now? Yes, yeah, there's a long way. So there's a lot of what I've learned especially throughout COVID is that there's a lot of uncertainty and even though you can have your plans of what you want to do, the exact route of how you're going to get there, it's hard to predict because sometimes life pulls you in another direction. True. It's uh, who said that uh, it's uh, very difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Right? It's, uh, it's uh, one year at a time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But are you, yeah? Yeah, I was going to say, but when you go to interviews, they'll ask you for your 10-year plan. So you got to... Yes, by then you'll be able to get a better idea yeah, of exactly. what you want to do. <laughs> but are you enjoying what you're doing? Yes. And that's one of the key things that you said. So I'm glad I am. I, I've met some students who have already dropped out because they aren't enjoying it. So... Like you said, it's very important to make sure that you do what you love. I think you made the right choice. Thanks. <laughs> and I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank I'm you. Sure, I'm sure you'll be a fine doctor, a researcher and practitioner. <laughs> <laughs> Everything. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> thank you very much. Of course. My pleasure. A huge thank you to Dr. Konstantin Sedikidis and Christina Valkanas. For this podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence.